Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue with our exploration of the words, teachings, actions of Jesus, since he is such an extraordinary spiritual personality. And uh, how do they apply to yoga? What can we understand from the standpoint of yoga with all those? Last uh, week, when we did the satsang, we are probably at the 25th episode of this Gospel of Luke, and we are not even halfway through it. So it's a long story. I will see. It seems that this season I'm staying with the Gospel of Luke. And there is a richness of teachings and the richness of spiritual inspiration which comes from this. As I said last time, we touched the subject which is very difficult. We sailed into very murky waters because we talked about the episode where Jesus took some demons out of a man and he even sent those demons to invade some pigs. And it's a very provocative dialogue. There are a lot of details which are very disturbing. And in this way, last week, I went with you deep into this subject of demonology and interference between human beings and demonic entities. And it's a subject which is very difficult and most people don't like to hear about it because if you go very, very perfectionistically into it, you find out that we human beings are doomed to live in a world of demon influence. Not necessarily of diabolic influence. I would like to make this distinction again and again for you. There is the sattvic influence, the influence of sattva guna, which is the white guna, and which is corresponding to wisdom and heights and to the world of the gods. There is the rajas guna, the red guna, which goes horizontally and which creates a dispersion. It doesn't take you to nirvana ever. And it's the guna of desire and of violence and activity. And rajas guna is the guna of the titans of the asuras, and these are the demons. And then there is the Tamas Guna, the dark Guna, the black Guna, which goes down. And that's the Guna which leads one to the darkness, to hell, to infernos. And uh, this Guna is the Guna which corresponds to the diabolic influence. So the white is Sattva and the dark, the black, is Tamas. And therefore, these are the ones which are opposite. This thing which we call demonic is something which is in the middle. And in the old days, the spiritual Puritans were against it. Like in India, the Devas, the gods, they are fighting with the Asuras. The Asuras are the enemies of the gods. And in Greece, in the Greek mythology, the gods are fighting with the Titans. The titans are the enemies of the gods. So even the demonic was not accepted, was not tolerated. Today, a lot of things are being tolerated and a lot of demonic things are being tolerated and the human being bathes in that. There still comes the thing that 
when you are a spiritual person, whatever your attitude towards this middle range is, the attitude towards the darkness is always an attitude of zero tolerance. So there is a zero tolerance to the diabolic, to the satanic, but when it comes to the demonic, the demonic, as the definition goes, is just middle of the way. For example, human beings, according to the Greek tradition, were given fire, the science of producing fire, by Prometheus, who was a titan. So it was a demon who taught fire. That uh, is uh, very much making happy the people who are doing raw veganism. Because they say, see, fire is the invention of a demon. Humanity without demonic influences would eat without fire, would cook without fire. No, fire is a demonic thing, no? So, or then we say the Chinese love fire and they have dishes which they boil for six hours. So it means the Chinese are very demonic. No, like we can draw all sorts of funny, bizarre, twisted conclusions which are not necessarily true because you think, you may think, primitively, uh, in a primitive direct ways, but what I'm trying to say is that the human being, if you think everything in black and white without this middle thing, everything sounds scary. Because the fact that you have candida, and everybody has candida, the question is how much candida you have in your system, and for example you crave sugar all the time, that's a demon. In your body, there is a demon which parasites you, which is called candida. And it shares the body with you. It impregnates your body. And this demon makes you desire sugar. The sugar tooth, the, the sweet tooth, is not yours. It belongs to something which is in your body and which is not really you. Genetically speaking, or whatever, whichever other way you want to put it. And then it's like it's a very spooky taste. When you get a flu you are temporarily possessed by a demon. Or even if it's a dengue or something. Your bowels are full of bacteria and there is the microbiome and your stool, your stool is more than 90% bacteria. So we are like drowning in bacteria and our microbiome, according to some people, can produce even schizophrenia. There are people who claim that they can relieve the symptoms of mental disease by dealing with a diet and with a microbiome, that there is something in the microbiome which fucks our brain. And therefore, it's like we are possessed. Indeed, the schizophrenic person is possessed, but the instrument of that possession could be in, your own, in our own bowels. And everything, we are epileptic, Epileptic is a sort of demonic possession. But uh, if you smoke the nicotine spirits, as known by the shamans of America, north and south, they are demons. And if you take ayahuasca, you are temporarily possessed by demons. But if you drink alcohol, you are also possessed by the spirits of alcohol, which are not always nice. Try to think how many odious things people do when they are drunk. How many car accidents, murders, and all sorts of other infamies are committed by people just because they are drunk, and then they say, the alcohol made me do it. 
Well, it means the alcohol is not very nice. The spirits behind that, they're not always nice. And the list could continue. If you have a computer and you are addicted to your computer, you are slightly possessed by the software demons. You know, there is addiction to computers, which has to be healed by psychotherapy and others. And software is supposed to, most of the software programmers are people who cavort with demons all day long. If you are having a car, it's a demon. Cars are demons, as said by Gurdjieff quite clearly. The souls of the cars and, of course, motorcycles, airplanes and others, they are demons. And we use them. We cavort with them. We use demons to fly from Germany to Thailand. No, we use their service. No. And they tax us in the end of the year a number of human lives for that. Every year there is a number of human lives which goes as blood sacrifice to those. It becomes intolerable no? because almost everything which you do, you have to live like Milarepa. If you live like Milarepa and eat extremely poor food and just meditate all day long, if you live like Francis of Assisi, then you are pure. But if not, there will always be some collapse. It's not necessarily that it is diabolic, dark, coming from the devil. But it comes from the titans. It comes from the asuras. And it's not necessarily spiritual. And it's not necessarily nice. And thus, when people hear about this demonic thing, not to mention that there is the diabolic thing as well, which is much heavier, much that one is 100% going towards the destruction of your spiritual evolution. But when you hear about demonic, diabolic and this, it makes people feel very heavy because we do so many things. Uh, I had some joints this year, you know, or something. Yeah, those are demons. So you have been openly cavorting with demons. Sorry. No, that's the traditional truth about it. And thus, people feel guilty and they feel who can live a pure life. Nobody can take that. And then people declare themselves defeated. People say, yeah, so it means I'm not cut to be like Milarepa. And if I'm not cut to be like Milarepa, I'm not cut to be anything. People jump from white to black. While the real spiritual art is to deal with life the way it is. It's a constant war. And if you are going to have much more grace coming to you, then you are going to become like Ramakrishna. Even Ramakrishna apparently was sometimes smoking cigarettes to have a nicotine addiction and to be attracted to his body. Like when he stayed too much in Samadhi, he came out of Samadhi because he wanted to smoke a cigarette. For him it was a method to get out of Samadhi because he was staying in Samadhi too much. Maybe he was lying to himself. I mean, it's hard to presume that Ramakrishna was lying to himself. But let's be cynical. Let's be full-on skeptical. Maybe that was Achilles' heel. Ramakrishna died of cancer in his throat while he was smoking. Is there a connection? Can anybody see a connection there? You know, it's like, no, he too, he went into cancer because he took upon himself karma. That may be true. But why did it hit him as cancer and in the throat when it's known that that would be one of the main effects of smoking tobacco? No. 
So maybe Ramakrishna was even lying to himself. He said, I have to keep a weakness and an addiction so that I can return to my body and blah, blah, blah. And maybe Jesus would clap him over the head and say, stupid Ramakrishna, you know, you're lying to yourself, idiot. You know, it's like even you, Ramakrishna, have a little bit of stupidity left in you, you know, like wake up, man. You know, look at me, Jesus. Why am I not going in Samadhi all the time and have to smoke a cigarette to get myself down, you know? Are you crazy? No. So, in this way, the real spiritual art is to deal with the reality as it is. Like, could I live now and do yoga, teach yoga, but without computers, without flying airplanes to Europe and back? Probably I could. No, I could myself see myself living in a hut in some Romanian mountains and being there as a hermit or as a simple person. But then we are going to the to the level of being like the Amish, the American Amish, you know. You live like the Amish, you don't even use electricity because there are demons in electricity or something, you know. Then you live like in the 17th century and you stay away from... Is it possible? Actually, there are whole communities who do just that. So I'm not saying it's impossible. But I'm saying it's like that's not really the breath of the modern times. If I want to be a guru who uploads a satsang on the internet, then I do use computers, I do fly airplanes, I do things, you know. I'm trying to keep this interference with the demons of Kali Yuga as low as possible. Like I'm not smoking, I'm not any, any time I'm not drinking alcohol to the point of getting tipsy or dizzy or anything. No, I'm saying this because I'm not a teetotaler and I can have at times half of a glass of red wine because it's therapeutical for the heart. But it never gets me drunk or any, I never drink to get drunk, you know, or something like this. So, therefore, um, one can avoid as many things as possible. But in the moment when you try to avoid everything, you know, like I'm driving a motorbike or a car. But I could come walking from my house. I could have a house right here on the opposite side, on this lawn here. I could build myself a little house, so I'm living 50 meters from the yoga hall. So, you know, I could, but it's not. that's not what I have done. And therefore, I'm having a silver demon that I'm driving back and forth from my house. No, and I'm therefore cavorting with the, but you know, we live in Kali Yuga, we live in the 21st century, and especially because I'm a tantric teacher and not a Vedantic uh, naked Baba living in the jungle, I'm simply giving it this thing that we live in the century where we live and we try to cope with these forces. Therefore, all this thing with the demonic and with this is not to scare you or to creep you out, or to make, accept it. Even those of you who are perfectionistic will have to accept this story, that in Kali Yuga, even your guru is uh, cavorting with some demonic influences, because we hardly can afford to be in tune with this century, and at the same time, completely puritanically, 100% without any influences, you know. Maybe I should not use fire at all, then, if fire is brought to humanity by Prometheus, who is a demon, 
as the Greeks call them, a titan. So, I'm telling you all these stories to, to alleviate a little bit this story. I'm not saying that you discover, oh, I'm smoking marijuana and therefore I'm possessed by the demons. But what the heck, Swami Vivekananda Sarasvati said, uh, shrug your shoulders and live with it. I'm not saying that you should be tolerant towards all these demonic influences like they are inevitable. But I'm not saying that you should get hysterical and scared and completely. You have to find a balanced position from where you can minimize. As some people say, uh, we have problems with global warming and the glasshouse effect and stuff like this. Okay, so what should we do? You know, who will be the first people who will stop flying airplanes, stop driving cars, stop using too much electricity or something? The famous concept called the carbon footprint, that we should have a very low carbon footprint because we are burdening Mother Earth with our things. Nobody does. I know people. Everybody will say, let Walter do it first. And when Walter has showed me that he is sincerely doing it for five years, then maybe I will also diminish a little bit my cravings and my things. You know, nobody wants, because everybody thinks I'm going to start wearing straw shoes or some low energy thing, and then all my neighbors are just going to have fun just like before. And then I'm just going to be made the fool that I was the idealistic idiot who was trying to sacrifice his life for the carbon footprint or some other concept like this. And that's why, of course, what I'm trying to say is that whichever the problems and the tensions are, there are people who tend to go black and white, but Buddha always recommends the middle path. There is a middle path, a path of balance with things. The same is with this thing, with the demonic. I'm not saying that you should favor anything demonic, and definitely not at all, zero tolerance towards what is satanic and diabolic. No, because all the great masters have had that, zero tolerance to the dark side. But this thing, the demonic, is like, it's very hard to avoid, and therefore I've met many teachers who are just trying to use it. Like Ramakrishna was so extreme, he couldn't touch money. And Ramakrishna was a financial loser all his life. He was just paid by a rich woman to exist and to eat and to, you know, and he didn't rub two pennies together. Swami Shivananda refrained from getting touched by money. Money is a demon, you know, in the Bible it's often mentioned like mammon or something, you know, as a form of the devil. You know, Jesus calls the money mammon or something. No, but Swami Shivananda handled millions of dollars building ashrams, universities, printing presses, kitchens and whatever else. And he didn't become a demonic or diabolic person. And he didn't get burned in his hands when people put a stack of money in his hands. While Ramakrishna did. So even among the yogis, they are like, Swami Shivananda said, hey, I live in the 20th century. That's how the 20th century works. This is how the human society works. If I want to make a yoga library and if I want to make a yoga university, this is what I have to do. And he did. He touched money every day. No? Okay, maybe he had a secretary in the lie later here. Maybe he had a cashier or something. But virtually speaking, he did touch money 
No, because he accepted to handle, to circulate a lot of money for the many projects which he uh, encouraged and which he made. So that's why I'm telling you it's difficult to talk about the demonic, but don't have a black and white attitude to it. Yeah? It's true. Here we are being described the demonic influence, which is practically diabolic or satanic. A man was living naked like an animal, living out in tombs, like in caves. The Jewish tombs were like caves in hills and so on. And uh, he was screaming and, you know, he was a wild man and uh, the people were knew him. Many times it had seen them, though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he has broken his chains and then been driven by the demon into solitary places. No? So this man was a nuisance to the society. The community felt threatened by this man. So this man was a demonic thing which was not like the computer. That you say the computer has 90 useful things and it also produces 10 shitty things such as addiction, uh, computer nerds that cannot have sexual relationships and emotional relationships and other sorts of blockages uh, which are produced like, it's not 90 with 10, for this man it was 90 or more shitty and pra practically nothing good. So this man was demonic at the level of the satanic, you know, demonic at the, at the borderline with actually being possessed by the devils, not just by some demonic entities. So in, in this case, it's heavy and it's a bit scary when you go and analyze what Jesus is trying to show us because Jesus constantly shows something. He does it not because he does it and he says, everybody out, let me just deal with this. He does it always in the presence of people in a very exhibitionistic way because he wants the whole world to see and learn and understand he is there with a mission. And as you know the story, now I'm coming to the end of the story, then he asks what the name of the demon because in the old Kabbalistic and uh, in the old Hermetic magic, a way to get hold of an entity was to know its name and then you'll call it by the name and it will be like you say a mantra, it would be a word of power. So some of these words like, I don't know, you probably have heard, you know, Beelzebub and some of these names of demons and even of diabolic entities, they are like mantras. That's why the yogis say don't repeat, don't repeat these names, don't pronounce them too often, don't speak about it, because it's like an invocation, it's like you are invoking such forces. And the answer was legion, which is a classic one, because one was talking for all of them, but they basically answered to Jesus, but they did answer. They didn't try to fool around, because Jesus was there and was holding them like this, you know, even without knowing their names, and they answered the famous name, we are legion, like it's a hundred of us. This man is not possessed by one, two, well, this man is possessed by a lot of demons, and that's why he is messed up really really bad and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss because remember these demons come from the from hell they consume a lot of energy trying to grab an innocent victim it's never an innocent victim it's always a person who through their karma and resonance can be possessed because otherwise they would come and possess you 
why aren't you possessed by some legion of demons? Because you don't have the resonance and you don't have the karma for that. But somebody who has practiced black magic in his previous life and has been very dark, when he's born again in a new body, in his astral body is still the resonance from the previous life. And then he gnashes his teeth and wails in the sleep and he's dark and he's possessed and he starts smoking and drinking and doing all the things because he's tormented by demons which belong with him from, from his previous life. So there's always an explanation. And the demons begged Jesus to let them go into them and he gave them permission. So many things in just a simple sentence like this. Like the demons would fit in a human being as well as in a pig. Don't forget that the pig is the animal which is genetically closest to the human being. When they want to replace a valve in your heart, they don't put a chimpanzee valve or a gorilla valve. They put a pig's valve like they did to Mr. Schwarzenegger. It's a pig's valve. Pig's heart is the most similar with a man's heart. Pigs are almost identical genetically with us. So pigs are like grotesque human beings. Pigs are also very intelligent. And that's why when you kill pigs to eat pork, it's like almost like you kill human beings. There is a very great closeness there. And it tells us a lot of things. You know, remember George Orwell's novel, The Animal Farm, where the people who were in charge were the pigs. Yeah, so the pig and so many other, you know, and of course we call people, we say Donald Trump is like a pig or something, you know, like what do you mean by it? Everybody knows what you mean, that there are common features, there are a lot of similarities in a lot of behaviors or a lot of things, aspect, voice some other things, you know, I'm not necessarily talking about Trump, I just gave an example because he's a very hated figure these days and many people uh, insult him in a variety of ways so he gave them permission that the demons would feel good would feel that except possessing a human being another good place to be the next good place to be would be to be in pigs. They knew that they could not ask Jesus, take us, let us go from this person, but allow us to possess someone else. Moreover, there was no one else who had the karma and the resonance, because otherwise the demons, the pigs, demons, they would have done it already, without asking permission from Jesus. So there wasn't any place for them to go, there were no people who could be hosts for these demonic entities, but they could easily possess animals. Try to realize it's the nature, you know. A demon is somehow like a pig. And you would say that, you know, you would say, you know, like demonic entities do behave like pigs, you know. They, they trample over anything gentle or nice or, you know, they are like pigs. There is something common when you think telepathically like this, 
What does it suggest? So the demon said, why? If they would exist connected to the body and the brain of a pig, they would not go to hell. They would still be in the world. And Jesus said, amused, because you'd say if he was God, he didn't want the demons even in pigs, because even the pigs belong to God. But it's like Jesus didn't care. The damage done to animals would be minor. Like this man was living like an animal. And that was intolerable because he was supposed to live as a human being and evolve. But pigs being possessed by the demons of the pigs would live like pigs. So what's the difference? Not much. And that's why Jesus, even as being the God of the animals as well, he could afford this experiment. Because Jesus, if he is God, he is the God of the demons as well. So he has to be a father to the sick man, he has to be a father to the pigs, and he has to be a father to the demons as well, because they all belong to him. The whole universe belongs to him. And then in this compassionate relationship, and it's more like an experiment because now we read about it and we learn something, Jesus half smiles because he knows where this is going, and he says, so be it, go into the pigs. Like there is zero tolerance that you touch this man. Ah, you want to go into the pigs instead of going back home in hell? Uh -huh, sure, go to the pigs. No? The world will learn something from this, and therefore it's a worthy experiment. When the demons came out of the men, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So the animals, being suddenly possessed by permission from Jesus, being suddenly possessed, what did they do? The experience for the pigs was so unusual and so agonizing and the hate in these demons was like Aah! that they went and drowned themselves. It was a mixture, you know, like sometimes people beat themselves, slap themselves, punish themselves, hate themselves, take cigarettes and kill themselves and do all sorts of things, self-destructive. These demons were the self-destructive type. The man who was possessed by these demons, he was destroying himself for many years. And now they moved into pigs, and the pigs self-destroyed themselves. Only the pigs don't have cigarettes and other aberrant behaviors. They are just simplified beings with a simplified psyche and mind. And all that produced inside the pigs, it was self-destruction, and they simply jumped into the water. Sometimes nature itself is bearing this brunt of the demonic. We see whales and dolphins and other animals which die in herds like this. They just throw themselves somewhere and they die. So... Remember that we are talking here about demonic influences of a dark kind, of a very dark kind. And um, the pigs were drowned. 
what does the state oracle when the state oracle of the Dalai Lama gets possessed by a demon and he has to give prophecies for one year. That's the function of it. It's a man who is going into a shamanic trance by breathing and other methods and he gets possessed by a demon and uh, that demon has his body for one hour, 30 minutes to one hour, and in exchange he has to offer, he has to answer questions about the future. And it's an institution which has been going on for hundreds of years at the court of the Dalai Lamas. I'm not sure, but I suppose he still has a state oracle now while he lives in India. There are documentaries about this state oracle which we have in the library of Agama. And what does the demon do when he is given a human body for one hour? He eats and he dances some horrible dances. He just wants to move like a claustrophobic person that was kept like this for one year. And when you give it freedom, it goes like... You know, he just goes like an idiot. You could say, if I would have one hour of freedom, I would use it in a more intelligent way. But the demon is not intelligent. The demon is an animal. He would go in a pig and make the pig commit suicide, you know. So, this demonic intelligence is sometimes very primitive and very evil in a primitive way, you know, like very square, very animalistic, primitive in an animalistic way. And so, when the pigs, at least the man was free, the legion of demons went into a herd of pigs and they killed them all. That was their pleasure, to kill the pigs, to kill the animals, you know. That's what they would do. They were doing the same with this man, but in another more sophisticated and long-term way. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, because they were shepherds, pig shepherds, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. Like the people said, they came a crazy guy with long hair. He talked to this guy, which we all know, and which is the demonized guy of the village. He somehow seems to have healed him, but he contaminated our pigs. You can imagine they were not very happy because for them this was their livelihood. And they said, what did we do to deserve this? That you suddenly took our 60 pigs and they got drowned and now we got zilch and you just made a demonstration of healing one man. But we paid the piper. We paid the price. We are the ones who paid because we lost 60 pigs. Are you crazy? Like, why do you do miracles on our back? Do miracles on whatever you want, but not on our business, not on our livelihood. So, people, it was a turmoil. There was a great ado. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid because they had tried to tie this guy with chains. This guy had been there for a lifetime. And suddenly there comes somebody who makes him healthy. Suddenly, when nobody thought it was possible, he had been chained many times. And a guy just makes him healthy like this. 
but he kills 60 pigs indirectly in the process. Remember, those pigs were also to be considered like a magic sacrifice. Take your pigs and the life of the pigs and leave my brother alone. No? It was like Jesus was like a magician. I offer 60 pigs. Well, however, they may have been 30, they may have been 100. It doesn't matter. I'm just saying 60 for the sake of a clear picture. You know, And he gave 60 pigs. It's a bargain. I give you the pigs, leave my brother, leave a human being alone. But the people who were with the pigs, they didn't think alike. And the village didn't because the pig herds were herding the pigs of the people from the village. Everybody had two, three pigs there in that thing. And they all had lost all their pigs. So they were interested in the miracle. But this had been a very costly miracle for them as a city. Right? Probably Jesus also wanted to punish them a little bit. To show them that there is a prize. To teach them. To prod them a little bit. To provoke them. To see how will they react. Like Jesus was a bit naughty. Because could Jesus have just told to the demons. No. No pigs. Just fuck off. Of course he could. But this time he played a little bit. He was playful. Because remember. He was the God of the demons as well. The demons belonged still to his universe. To his manifestation. And God is the father of everyone. Even to those who live in hell. Still God is their cosmic father. And thus Jesus did something in a godly way. He was right. And they were afraid. Like you know there came a crazy guy. Who killed 60 pigs and healed Walter. The question is what the fuck is this madman going to go next? What's he going to do next? Maybe he gets some other funny idea. Like this is a man who has an atomic bomb in his pocket, you know. And people usually when they see this, when it comes to this, people don't say, wow, God is with us. Praise, you know, like it doesn't matter we lost some pigs. We have seen something and God... Somebody who is as strong as God is visiting us for God's sake. Great, great. No, people are not like this. And they were afraid. Of course, they didn't know that Jesus was God, an avatar. They just thought he was some crazy prophet. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed men had been cured. They told them the story. Of course, they didn't know the inside story. They knew what was seen and that they heard that Jesus said, okay, go to the pigs. So that, that part was no. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. Believe me, that's not a good sign, metaphysically speaking. If you are visited by Jesus and you are afraid... It's not a good sign. Because you should never be afraid of Jesus. Even if you made a stupid thing, you should go and apologize and repent and compensate in some way, but never be afraid. To be afraid of God, it puts you also in the category of the demons. Because only the demons and the devils are afraid of God, because God is righteous 
and God is correct and God is just and God is this light. And therefore, for these people, it was a terrible test. We don't know why Jesus in this village, he chose to push them, but he pushed them and they failed the test because the miracle was, everybody could laugh and say, okay, we got our brother back, Walter is back, and we lost 60 pigs. It's like, it's not fun, but at least we've seen something which our children and grandchildren will still listen to this story in awe of what we have seen today. So we'll just rebuild our herd of swine, and we will, you know, we'll, we're not finished because of that. No? They told Jesus, oh man, you are really weird. Please, can you go, go away from our village? Because they were afraid. God was too great and too radical for them. And they were afraid. Which means that the pigs, the demons, the demonized men. <laughs> it was not a coincidence. The people in that area were inferior, materialistic, low frequency. And when confronted with something, boom, they just got afraid. <clears throat> that thing has happened so many times. There are some of these <clears throat> Catholic movies about the miracle from Fatima, the children who saw Virgin Mary in Portugal, uh, the song of Bernadette, the girl who discovered the water in Lourdes in France, this spring of water where Virgin Mary produces miracles sometimes. And there is another one which I don't remember now. At least three of these miracle movies from the last centuries in the Western world, in all of them when you see the... There were movies made after this. And when you see the movie, you see that the authorities and the government, they were angry, afraid and rabid. They tortured people. They beat people. They put people in prison. They tried all the maneuvers and all the manipulation and all the tricks in the book to stop those religious fervor phenomena. Mysterious. Why would you be afraid that a girl discovered the spring with healing properties in Lourdes and you will try to close it with a fence and to tell to everybody, shoot, 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 go away. There is no healing water. Like, what the fuck does that disturb you? Today, Lourdes is one of the most popular pilgrimage places in France, and the community of Lourdes is probably making a truckload of money on tourism and pilgrimage, because that girl called Bernadette, she discovered that spring of water. But the first decision of the government and authorities was a decision of fear, rejection, and violence. This is how human beings are. So, so these people got visited by Jesus. Jesus did a terrible healing, indeed scary. And they told him, man, go away. You're not welcome in our village, you know. But it's because they were afraid that more will come and that they cannot cope with it. This shows that these people were already slightly demonic. The whole village was not a very good place. So, he got into the boat and left. Later, when he sent disciples, he sent his apostles to make the winter in the villages of Galilee, because they were dependent on seasons, and winter is not very, very harsh 
in Palestine, but still there is a bit of cold and rain and sometimes occasionally even a gist of snow. No? So Jesus was not doing these things in the winter. In the winter they all went into a hut and they had a fire and they were eating and telling stories and sleeping. Jesus was not on pilgrimage. After February, because the winter is very short in that part of the world, but in December, January, February, there was not much to do. So uh, Jesus sent his apostles and he told them, if, if there is any village who is afraid of you or doesn't want to receive you, just turn on your heels and go. And he said, those villages will have a lot of problems in time because unconsciously, but unconsciously still means something, unconsciously they rejected people sent by me, Jesus, who am God. So these people rejected Peter and John and Thomas. It means they are not loving God because if they love God, they would instinctively feel like, oh, this nice person called Thomas is very nice. He's very, he brings us something. Very, let him make spend his winter here in the village with us. But not everybody does. Some people, on the contrary, feel provoked. So Jesus himself, he didn't make any fuss. He said, you don't want me in your house? No problemo. So he got into the boat and left. He had come there by boat. Turned on his heels. He had done already his flashy thing with the demonized man and with the pigs. He got into the boat and left. That's how God is. If you slam the door in his face, he can go very easily. He doesn't insist ever. No? Exactly as the story with the gurus is in India. You know, the gurus are not hunting for disciples. The disciples are hunting for the gurus in India, in Tibet. No, So it's like if people don't want, they don't want. It's fine. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. Like to go with him would mean to become part of his stuff. Maybe to become an apostle. But Jesus sent him away. This man was coming from severe demonic and perhaps even diabolic possession. And now he was in three years. He would become one of the twelve enlightened beings. Who would convert Europe to Christianity. <coughs> that it was too much. See, Jesus doesn't explain why, but that's what it is. It's like this guy was in spiritual kindergarten. He was not a very evolved soul. Now, he was just coming out from the yoke of the devil. He had on his neck the yoke of the devil until five minutes ago. And now, he wants to go with Jesus and become one of the big league. Jesus says, no dear, that's a bit much for you. No, it's like the leap is too big because a soul needs time to evolve. And Jesus could not compensate for his evolution. Evolution is a special experience of every soul, which has so enough that this soul, let's say that this guy is reincarnated now on planet Earth. Can you imagine? If he would do a memory regression, he would discover that 2,000 years ago he was possessed by demons and Jesus passed by and saved him from his demons.
It's already a super remarkable thing which happened in one of the lives of this man. That in the same life he should also become apostle. That was a bit much. And Jesus has measure. Jesus is have a, has a divine understanding. And he knows. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm happy. You have a good soul and you want more. And you will get more slowly, slowly, you know. Keep being faithful to God and all this. But uh, not coming with me is a bit much. So Jesus also refused people sometimes. So he refused this guy. And Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. He doesn't say I. He says God. Because God has saved you from the... It's true, via me. But God has saved you. And better be a preacher. Go and live a good life and tell to everybody, look what God did for me when I was 35 or 40 years old. I was a loser possessed by demons. And then God, through the agency of Jesus, came and did like this. And I was saved. And ever since, I can live a normal life. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank I don't know how to thank God for this miracle. No? So, he simply says... Start doing some spiritual work. You have to earn merit. You just come from a dark karma which allowed you to be possessed by demons. I finished that karma off, but it doesn't mean now you can go in the opposite extreme and become an apostle. No? Like all things have to have the due measure, which means also that when he selected Peter and Thomas and John and this, he knew that he was selecting some people who were high souls, evolved, and who were having a sort of a natural opening and aspiration towards God. Like you would expect Jesus to be a supreme connoisseur of the human nature. Like he would look into the eyes of people and he would know, this one is close, so let's take him in the dream team. So he sent him home and he says, no, rather return home and tell to people how much God has done for you so that people love God, thank God, appreciate God through your experience. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. There is a fine shade here. I'm not going to insist on it too much. But see, the man didn't know God. He could see Jesus. That's why it was necessary that Jesus should come. That's why people need gurus. That's why we need the Ramakrishna and the Patanjali and the Milarepa and the likes of them. Because it's easy to say God, 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 the Buddha nature, the infinite consciousness. Where is it? How are you going to thank to it? But when you see that Jesus came and did like this and the demons were gone spectacularly into pigs and the pigs drowned and so on. Then people say, well, God did it, Jesus did it. And of course he says that God did it. But as far as I can see, Jesus did it. And of course he is modest. And he says God did it through him, via him. So that is what I'm talking about. Here the person is twisting it. He says, Jesus is modest and says, say how much God has done for you. And the guy went into town and said how much Jesus had done for him. Like, okay, theologically, Christian theologians say that Jesus is God. 
And therefore, it's not uh, wrong that in one sentence you say Jesus and in the other sentence you say God. But still for this man, it made a difference. And for the people in the village who were quite scared and, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't get on the right foot with Jesus. They had an experience where they told Jesus, just get out of our village. Uh, you are not welcome in our village, you know. So... Um, it's very interesting to see how people need a symbol, a face, somebody to connect it with. They need Jesus to believe in God. Because otherwise, Jesus says, thank God, but they say Jesus did it. People need a concrete support for many of their things. So, I could continue, I could write a book easily on demonology and it would be a very revealing book and a very shocking book and a very exceptional book about all the demonic influences that we have non-stop in our lives and again about the fact that people should not get paranoid about it because some of it is inevitable inevitable to a large extent no so Again, I'm not going to insist uh, with all the things which I said, even biologically, not to mention all the things which happen mentally and intellectually and emotionally and in all those ways. So uh, this paragraph had been a splendid example of the fact that when people talk about demons and demonic influences, they are right. And people should not say, oh, but you are like uh, some fundamentalistic fanatic or some. It's written by Jesus. Jesus spoke often and he did several times examples like this. Here is one of the most shocking examples where Jesus showed that these influences are exactly like a hand which goes into a glove. And he could take the demons out of that dude out of that John Doe out of that Walter and even put them in pigs not like how much more do you want to see to realize that these things are concrete organically existing part of this universe part of the invisible influences that we have in this universe and all that it's obvious and thus we conclude with this and we go further with Jesus in his travel. So he left and he went back over the lake. I told you this Galilee Sea is a very, very, it's like a lake. So it's probably smaller than Lake Como or some big Italian lake or so some big European lake. It's a relatively small lake. You can see the other shore from one shore in clear days. So he went back, he said, okay. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Like Jesus had been on the previous, on the other side. He had done his stuff. He went, and people were like, wow, how did we miss that guy? We heard such exceptional things. And now because the other guys are stupid and they don't want to receive him well, lo, that Jesus is rowing back. And he's back with his team. And of course people now were excited because Jesus was coming from here before 
he had been here before. Then, I mean, now people, if they knew that the sky is the limit, and this Jesus is a man who has almost no limit, like you can ask him whatever you want, then uh, they pushed the envelope. They got a bit naughty. And the example is very clear. The first example is very clear. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. Jesus was not very much friends with the rulers of the synagogues because the high priests and these big people in the Jewish religion, they felt that Jesus is uh, endangering their authority. They feel like he was an usurper coming out of nowhere and suddenly being smarter, you know, because they were the ones who told to people, listen, O Israel, in the Bible, in the Pentateuch, God has said this, let me quote to you the words of God from our sacred scriptures. They were the teachers. They were the ones who were preaching and who had authority. And now this Jesus comes and sweeps that carpet, like Jesus is a much bigger teacher than they who repeat some words from the books. Most of them didn't manage to go beyond their ego. And uh, that's where a lot of the conflict, which build up and build up, a lot of the conflict was coming there. Because Jesus was the real thing, while these people were just scholars. At the best, they were scholars. And it's the famous conflict between a scholar and a guru, a real person who knows how things are going. So perhaps this man called Jairus, when Jesus came first time, maybe he was even annoyed or like, yeah, yeah, there is a new prophet in town. You know, like they are trying to take my bread and butter, you know, this is my bread and butter in this village. You know, and, there, and then Jesus went and then this guy heard a lot of good things and a lot of astonishing things. And as fate would have it, he had a huge problem. Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Remember, in those days, medicine was very primitive and people were dying like flies. A simple evaluation said that if a mother had 10 children, five of them will not make it to the age of 18. And therefore, mortality, especially among children, and the life expectation of adult people was around 40 years. You can see even in the 12th century, there is that terrible movie called The Lion in the Winter about Henry II. It's played by Peter O'Toole, formidable movie, but not spiritual. It's a movie which showed the human wickedness to the bone because this king was a beast, was an animal. He killed um, Sir Thomas Becket. It's the same king which assassinated Thomas Becket, the British saint. And uh, this Hendrik II, he tells to his wife with whom he has a cynical and uh, bitter relationship, and he says, what do you want from me? He says, I'm 45 years old. I'm older than most of the people in this country. I'm much older than the Pope himself. And I've already outlived my usefulness. Like people at 45 years old, they consider themselves like we would say today when you are 85. 
or something. So uh, people were dying and, uh, you know, a girl had a fever. I don't know, what if it was meningitis? Let's say it was meningitis. Could Jewish doctors 2,000 years ago even have an intuition about what meningitis is and how it works? Would half of the people who had meningitis die in a high fever? Yes. And thus, the same here. He had a daughter and she was dying. Why? Probably because she had had high fever for three days and she was not eating and she was delirious. Nobody could do anything. And the clear conclusion, they have seen this happening a hundred times in their village, was that the girl was dying. So people could at least see that this is a serious thing which probably will kill her. As Jesus was on his way, so Jesus acceded. This guy said, Master, I heard about you. I have a 12-year-old daughter. She's dying. Please, please. He fell at his feet. So he begged him abjectly, humbly. He begged him, you know, and of course Jesus being God and wanting, having a mission to do things, he exceeds. Also, if Jesus had the slightest amount of clairvoyance or intuition, and we know he had more than the slightest amount of everything, then Jesus knew that this would be another one of the major landmarks of his life. Because we are again dealing with a case where Jesus brought back somebody from the dead. Before we encountered the case where he met a mother burying her own son and he got that boy up from the coffin. They were transporting him to the burial place and Jesus brought him back. So that boy had been dead for at least one day or so. Maybe less, maybe they were burying them in the same day. Sometimes they did burial in the same day or in the next day. And Jesus did it. It's not the first time, but this time it's a child. It's a little girl. Exception made of the real brag that he did with Lazarus, which is even a more scandalous one than this one. Most people, if they remember that Jesus brought somebody to life, is the daughter of Jairus. This one is one of the typical ones. As I told in a previous satsang, this is one of the staple marks for Jesus. As much as you want to be told that, uh, oh, there have been resurrections before, that's not true. It's resurrections exist only in myths that Osiris was dead, Osiris, and Isis picked up his pieces and licked them together, and then and Osiris was back to life. That's not a fact from history. That's an Egyptian myth. Myths are not that people have been real and they have done that. Myths are like the legends of Mount Olympus. They are stories from the causal world which happened to the gods. And maybe who interfere with human beings, but not a historical event right here you know, in all of it, because as long as it has a divine face to it. So actually, if you search the human history, there is no resurrection. 
Even Milarepa and Ramakrishna produced a lot of miracles, but they never resurrected anybody. Nobody before Jesus, even Moses, he did crazy miracles, split the waters of the Red Sea, killed the firstborn in every Egyptian family in Cairo or whichever the town was. Uh, crazy stuff. The rivers of Egypt turned red with blood or with whatever it was. Colossal miracles. No resurrection. Like nobody turns back death. Death is death. And there is a law of nature which makes that death is irreversible 99.9999999999% of the time. We have sometimes people who had near death experience, but those people were not really dead. They were not, they were clinically dead. They had a coma, they had a form of clinical death, but they were not perm, like the, the soul was not split away from the body. And they were not technically speaking dead, although they could be in coma, and with the medical ignorance from those days, you would say, well, I don't feel the pulse, they don't seem to breathe, so they must be dead. But they were not technically speaking dead. So resurrections in the human history, they did not happen. Even Krishna, who was an avatar, he did not perform resurrections. Krishna did perform many miracles, but not resurrections. And thus, what I'm trying to say here is Jesus is the first one who brings this in the daily life, like in, in between humans. Not that we talk about myths of resurrection, but we talk about, you know, that uh, Shiva killed Ganesha, and then Shakti made a fuss about it, and Shiva said, okay, okay, and he took a head of an elephant and put it back on the body of Ganesha, and said, and Ganesha was alive, but having a head of an elephant. You know, that's a myth. It's not a historical event which happened in a certain year, in a certain place. It's a myth. But when we talk about people who lived at a certain address on planet Earth, we don't have that. Actually, you are going to say, but I heard that Saint Anthony of Padova, of Padua, Italian saint, disciple of Francis of Assisi, he raised from the dead a little girl who was drowned. Yeah. But they were disciples of Jesus. It did happen after Jesus in the name of Jesus. It did happen a few times. But still, it all hangs on Jesus. So it appears that nobody was an avatar so strong as to have permission from God to violate one of the most fundamental laws of nature. Like my son... You can go down there on earth and if you need it, you can even raise the dead, you know, like show those idiots that there is no limit, you know, like push the envelope as much as you want. Go even for the big one. Resurrection is the big one. Not only that resurrection is so much a staple mark that it happened to Jesus himself. And both Judaism and Islam they cannot accept it. They are great religions. And still they cannot accept that Jesus was resurrected. The Jews say that the disciples stole the body 
and then they buried it somewhere else and they created the story that Jesus was alive. And the Muslims say that according to their knowledge, Jesus was in a clinical death and he was brought back to life, but he was not really dead. And then after they fixed him a little bit, they put him on the back of a camel and they sent him all the way to Kashmir, all the way to Srinagar to take him out of the way of the Jewish priests and that Jesus lived another 30 years in Srinagar. Anything, anything would go except accepting that Jesus perhaps was brought up and that this, although it's extremely rare and very, very exceptional in all respects, still it's possible. Yeah, we don't see it all day because it's a miracle which is incredibly demanding. It's like it requires that God gives acceptance, accepts something really, really unusual. You really need to have a grace for that. But for Jesus, Jesus did it three or four times. Like once a year. If he was on uh, here for three years, three years and a half, then for he did it practically once a year. And that's coming up, the daughter of Jairus. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. Can you imagine the madness? Like people had Jesus back. They had no television, no cinema, no internet, no books, no nothing. And now the circus was back in town. And it was a circus which was supposed to be from God. So like people must have been completely nuts. There must have been there an unleashed crowd which was like nuts. I have seen scenes of religious fervor in Indian temples, in Romanian churches, and in many other places. And people stampede on each other. They go crazy. In Indian temples, in festivals, there are often episodes where tens of people die, trampled upon by the other people, who because of the religious fervor, they become a little bit like animals. They lose all common sense, and they just go, go, because they want, they want, they want, they want, and so on. The modern Indian government has forbidden a lot of religious festivals, like Ganesha Chaturthar, Chatur, Chatur Arthi, the festival of Ganesha, which is supposed to happen in end of August, beginning of September, simply because there were a lot of deaths during Ganesha festivals. They would like to close down the Kumbamelas because there are people dying in the Kumbamelas as well, but it's too many millions of people and there is too much religious momentum and they don't dare. Any parliament who would vote to forbid public access to Kumbamela they would be voted down immediately by half of India and they would lose their... You know, so they don't dare to do such things because of popularity and politicianic interests. And the woman was there in this mad crowd which was crushing Jesus. They were not very polite to him, like making an alley for Jesus to walk like they do today for the Pope or something. They were simply crushing him. And the woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. You all understand that it's a bleeding from the yoni. It's a menstrual bleeding, but of a very, very bad type. It's a sort of a non-stop menstruation. A woman feels depleted after five days of menstruation. 
if this woman had been bleeding for 12 years, we had a few women who had not quite, but almost half of that here in Agama, and they were white in their face and walking besides the walls to hold to the walls, not to fall down, to faint, because they were so weak and so anemic. And so, so this woman was bleeding for 12 years. You can imagine how, in what shape she was. And, but no one could heal her. So she had tried whatever, natural medicine, prayers, whatever. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Like this woman, because she was bleeding, you know, menstruating women are supposed to sit in a house and not show up and not go to the synagogue in that century, in that community. And this woman being bleeding, she was considered impure, 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 impure every day of her life. And the fact that she was bleeding nonstop made people just more cynical. They said, well, it means you are impure all the time. It's a punishment from God. This is the way it is. You know, it's not a coincidence that you are bleeding non-stop. God is teaching you a lesson, so we don't want to see you around, no? So this woman didn't come and say, Lord, Lord, I'm bleeding or something. She didn't have the courage. She was a pariah. She was a low life. She was a person considered impure. So all she could do in her humbleness was come from behind and just touch his cloak, just touch his garment, you know, just touched him. Even this probably it seemed like I'm bold, but I'm dying if I don't do this. You know, I have, it's my life. I have to try to do something. That's all she could make herself do. Just touch his cloak. The edge of his cloak. And immediately her bleeding stopped. Like in five minutes she would know. Immediately means in five minutes. Probably she realized instantaneously something happened. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Because he knew that a miracle had just happened through him. Because the energy flew through him. There are some really bad Christian movies, especially done by the Protestant churches and neo-Protestant churches, where Jesus is presented like a sort of a schizophrenic imbecile through whom miracles happen, and he cannot understand why they happen, and he even keeps asking, why me? Why me, oh God? This is the vision of the Protestants on Jesus. They have given up on the fact that Jesus was God. Jesus was a carpenter from Nazareth, plagued by some rare grace from God that miracles were happening through him. This is bullshit. It's already the place where Christianity got to the place where it has become bullshit, Christianity. So, of course, Jesus knew. You can see from here. It's not that he says, why me? Something has happened again. Oh my God. No. He's not a victim of his miracles. He knows every step of it. And even when somebody touched him in a crowd, he says, who touched me? Like now I know that something happened. When they all denied it, like those around said, not me, not me. Oh, but he, they were, he was crushed, remember. Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. It's like, what the heck would touch me? Everybody touched you. Are you crazy? You know, it's like, but Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. So it was not at all unconscious or, oops, 
here is another miracle happened. No, he was 110% aware of everything as you would expect from an avatar, as you would expect from somebody who is God and who says he is God and who does what Jesus does. So Jesus says, you know, it's like, no, 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 don't, it's not, I'm not talking about accidental touching, rubbing shoulders with people. I'm talking about that somebody has touched me religiously and they received grace. And I felt it because it came through me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, she would have liked to go unnoticed. Not because she was ashamed, feeling guilty, dirty, impure. Came trembling and fell at his feet. Imagine what a revolution it was. That woman was sick, considered impure. She like had a curse upon herself. And suddenly a great prophet comes back and says, you've touched me, somebody has touched me, you know, like, and she knows that the miracle has happened. So she simply cannot hide it. There's no way she could hide it, being in that state of consciousness, being in the middle of that event. Although she tried to, she trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. So you see, Jesus works like a mirror. Like she didn't speak with him. She didn't get his approval. She said, I know you are the son of God. And even by a touch, I am an impure woman. I would not dare to eat one second from your time. Just let me touch you and please, please heal me. And it was done like this. So Jesus acts even when he is not acting. For example, people say, but Swamiji, many people might be thinking about you, like I've taught yoga to tens of thousands of people in my life. Many people might be thinking of you, and some of them who still believe in you, or who did believe in you three years ago or something, if they are at a crossroads, if they have some difficulty or problem, they sometimes they pray to you, they think about you, they say, may Vivekananda, may Swamiji help me, you know, and so on. Do you feel it? And I told to people, not always consciously. Like some of it happens subconsciously, which doesn't mean I'm not aware of it, but it happens at a level where it goes like on automatic pilot. Because I make a consecration, I say, may all those who ask for this help be given this help. And I don't need to stop because if 10,000 people every day, or if a 1,000 people, or if a 100 people every day they ping and pong with me like this, I would be like a ping pong ball. I would say, now some, now Jack from the United States, now William from France, now this guy, you know, like, what am I doing? I'd be like going crazy. So the mechanism through which this happens is a mechanism which very few of you will understand because it involves the subconscious mind. But you can feel your subconscious mind and definitely Jesus was feeling his subconscious mind and he was aware, but still a lot of things won't go automatically. I remember a beautiful story which produced a lot of emotion and aspiration in me at that time and I hope it will produce a lot of aspiration to you. Um, I, together with a friend of mine, and with a girl who was our colleague in the yoga school, in the yoga class, I was in my first year 
of Hatha Yoga with my first teacher of Hatha Yoga. I've had a spiritual teacher before that time, but now I was with this teacher in Hatha Yoga. And sometimes he was frighteningly developed from a spiritual standpoint. He was like, whoa. Now, he knew a lot of things and he could do a lot of things. And uh, then this girl, knowing that he was also, also a bit into Tantra, sexual Tantra, she was flirting with him. But not, she didn't have sex with him or anything. And she was not... Um, she was just flirting, you know, it was, it was a curious thing for her, for this man. And this man had a sense of humor, and he was kind of flirting back with her, but lightly, very, very lightly, and so on. And then one night, we do some spiritual evening, like this, not a satsang, but something, a meeting, a Q&A or something, and then we go back home 10 o'clock, 10.30 o'clock in Bucharest, in the communist times, it was generally a safe town. We didn't have places like you go in, in the Bronx or some other places where there will be street violence or there was no disorder, civic disorder in a communist state because the police had an iron grip. But still, you know, a woman alone walking home at 11.30 in the night in a city which at 10 o'clock went to bed and everything closed down at 10 o'clock including restaurants and bars and so on. It was like you'd go through a ghost town and if you'd meet with some people, you know, you always could be afraid or something. And this girl comes the next day or two days later or something and she tells to this guy, you know, last night when I went at home, there were some guys on the street and they seemed to be a gang of rowdies or something like this. And I got afraid. I thought that maybe they will abuse me in some way or something. And uh, coming impressed from your lecture and so on, she said, I just prayed to you. I just asked you in my mind. I visualized you and I said, please help me. And she said, it was a miracle completely. It's like those guys didn't even see me. Well, if you are cynical, you can say they never had any thought about her. She was just paranoid and she made. So actually there was no help. There is a chance, there is a 50% chance that this girl was just having a rich imagination and it was, but it's a typical story and that's why I'm telling it to you. So she said, I addressed you. And uh, he closes his eyes and says, yes, I did help you at that time. There was some tension there. There was some possibility of something amiss happening there. And then she says, but how did you know that exactly at that hour and exactly at that minute I needed you. Because I'm not a telepathic transmitter. If I'm trying to transmit to you a telepathic message, I don't have this ability. So how on earth did you know just because I asked you in my mind? And I will always remember his reaction. He smiled in a very compassionate way. That girl was a very Svadistanistic girl. Later, she'd been in yoga for decades and she progressed very little. She was not a Milarepa, you know, she was not a hard practitioner. She was uh, wishy-washy and all her life she stayed weak. No? And uh, so I understand now looking back, I see his compassion. 
and he looked at her with love, compassion, and a half of a smile. And he said, Claudia, she was called Claudia. She, he said, Claudia, what do you know about cosmic consciousness? Like, how can I explain to you that I can be with you even when I'm not thinking about you? How would you understand that? So that's why, you know, it's the same with Jesus. So many people were there, but one of them addressed him really hard, and this had happened. So it's a matter of cosmic consciousness, as he knows. So she, with faith, just said, May I be here, please heal me, even if you don't know it. You know, just touch the garment, touch his cloak. She had a lot of faith, right? Because you must have a lot of faith to assume that even such a little thing might come into healing you. And of course, she touched the right person. You can go to Vatican and try to touch the Pope. You will not get healed because the Pope doesn't have the power of Jesus. Only if Jesus wants to go via the Pope, it might happen. It will happen because of Jesus, not because of the Pope. So in this case, Jesus was there. And she and then she confessed. That confession is what Jesus wanted. Don't forget that Jesus is a missionary. Jesus is an activist. Jesus is a crusader. He came on planet Earth for three years to change the history of the world. So he needs to suck the Jews. He needs to capitalize on every event. You don't know how many people got healed of cancer and other severe diseases here in Agama. I know because people tell it to me. If we would have capitalized on this, we would have a file of thousands of cases, thousands of cases of people healed of cancer and other major comparable diseases in the last 15 years or 20 years. Nobody in this school has ever made a file or a case, like blood tests, case description before and after, filming it and putting it on YouTube, testimonials. We could have almost a testimonial every month of a major type. That's because we don't do PR. Agama is very poor at this. And it's in a certain way we say, well, if people come to us, they come. You know, like there were people, we have students in the school now who said, if I wouldn't have been told by this person to go to Kopangan and find you, I wouldn't have found you. I was on internet. I had a PhD in internet and stuff like this. And I never knew about Swami Vivekananda and Agama. On Internet, if somebody Googles the best yoga in the world or some, they will never find Agama. They will never find Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. Like, you guys are lousy in PR. You are invisible, simply. You don't exist on Internet today. No? So that's why I say, uh, Jesus was not like this. Jesus was capitalizing. He said, ha, something happened, please. Confess, did God heal you? Yes. Tell it so that everybody can hear. 
Brothers, sisters, I was bleeding for 12 years. I just prayed to God, touch this man. Look, my bleeding has stopped right now. In the instant. Good. Have you heard everybody? Do you realize that God can do anything you ask Him to do? Will you have please more faith and surrender? Ishvara Pranidana. Good. Thus, this is the lesson of the day. Like Jesus was always capitalizing. He never allowed such things to go like, uh, you know, again I'm saying, Agama, if it would go by how much healing has happened here, we would be more known than any alternative healing institution in this world. No? So, and then Jesus said to this woman, daughter, he calls her daughter because he is God, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. So it's an example for FC. Exactly as this woman just believed it and touched and it came to her, so can you. So stop complaining that you have problems. Your problem is that you don't have faith as much as this woman had. Otherwise, look, at the right time, at the right place, she just asked, it happened. Why can't you ask and why can't it happen to you? No? So in this way, Jesus capitalizes and he always makes a lot of fuss about the faith. Because Jesus does not teach pranayama on Anahata Chakra. And he doesn't say, your heart chakra, your heart has saved you. Because he doesn't have time. Later, the Christian people have started building monasteries. And some people live 20, 30, 40, 50 years in a monastery. Practicing prayer, practicing prayer, practicing prayer. At this time, it was just a party. It was a party around Jesus. There was no structure, no education, no practice, no ashram, no monastery, you know. So Jesus, for the time being, in that circumstance, he was just insisting on faith. He said, how can people be so limited that I'm walking on water, I'm stopping the storm, I'm rising Lazarus from the dead, and still people don't believe it. It's unbelievable how little faith people have. Like even when I am alive in front of them, you know, and I'm doing it every day, and people still don't have faith. For him, the faith was the thing. He came, then later, you can say, okay, people had faith or no, and they went to a monastery and they practiced and they prayed and all that. So for him, it was like, as long as I live, people just have to look at me and see that it's all real. You know, it's like, it's all real. What the heck? Even when you see me, no, when they arrested him, everybody ran away. Everybody ran away. There was not one person who said, hey, I've been with this guy for three years, and I'm sure that this guy is God, is divine, you know? And even if I have to die, I will die. You know, that's what it is. But this is my teacher. This is my... No. No. Everybody ran away. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus. So we are there. Two events in parallel. This was a parenthesis. He was going to Jairus, whose daughter was sick. And somebody came from the house of Jairus at about the same time and said to Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead. He said, 
don't bother the teacher anymore. Like Jesus was mostly famed as a healer. He healed this woman with the bleeding. But if she was dead, she was dead. So that man simply brought the anti-faith. He said, don't bother Jesus anymore. Now what's, what's done, it's done. She's dead. It's too late. Hearing this, now comes the cheek. Cheeky Jesus. You know? Jesus is cheeky. You know, like, he know, and now he's bold. Now he's bold to the brink of madness. Like, only a person who is mad would push the envelope now here. Like, Jesus could say, yeah, well, sorry, I had the best in it. I anyhow healed the woman with the bleeding, right? So it's like, sorry, Jairus. No, I'm, I feel for you. You know, I'm, I have compassion for you. But no, Jesus is God and there is no limit for him. That's where we all differ, you know. It's even Buddha didn't do this. When a woman showed him his, her dead child, he said, daughter, in every hut in this village, somebody has died. Children die, elderly people die, death is present everywhere. Why are you trying to stop your child from dying? When death is just part of life, you know, it's, uh, there's no, like, uh, Buddha, with all due respect towards Buddha, he bullshitted her. Buddha never resurrected anybody. But Jesus, even when he is told, uh, cool down, okay, we could, we tried, but we couldn't. But hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, to the father, imagine if it's a bluff. It's the most cruel bluff in the world because he's telling to the father of a dead girl. He just heard his daughter <coughs> had died minutes ago. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And yeah, that's the problem. It's a fear. Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. Like, what do you mean healed? She's dead. What do you mean healed? We're not talking about healing anymore. We're talking about something much bigger than healing. And he says, don't be afraid, just believe, because he was just talking about faith. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him, except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. So there are five people who witnessed this. Not too many. He didn't say, come everybody and see what I do. Even there, there is a limit. Jesus has a reason. He did it in front of five people, not in front of 500 people. There is something in this to meditate profoundly on. Why Jesus, if he can do it, why not just do it? You know, like splash it. No. The other people have never seen it. So they could say maybe she was not really dead. Maybe she was just, they thought she was dead and she was in a coma. And this guy just rubbed her with vinegar a little bit and brought her back. Or like, no, anything goes. Jesus did it in front of those five. Three of his disciples, not all of them, and the father and the mother, because for them it meant the heaven and earth. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead but asleep. Because he knew that a mass energy of hundred people wailing 
produces a very bad energy. Those of you who did the art of dying, you know that one of the worst things which you can do with a person who is dead is just to wail like idiots around the dead body, like you are wailing like a defeat, like a loser, like a defeated person. That's exactly what you should not do. And these people, they were generating a negative energy by wailing and so on. You know? And Jesus, you know, so Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead but asleep. But of course, for people, it was like, I come on. Was like, we have been told she's dead. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But at least they were not wailing. Now they laughed at Jesus. <laughs> Fool, you know, like liar. No, they laughed at him. But they were not wailing. They changed the attention. He distracted their attention, even making a fool of himself. He took it upon himself. So now they are laughing. He then he could cope with that. But the wailing was a negative energy, which he didn't want. Could he have done it with them wailing? Yes, because Jesus could have done pretty much anything. But why go so far when it was more simple to do like a hocus-pocus and distract their attention? And he took it upon himself. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. The, what the Bible says in another version of it, he said, rise, little girl. And in Hebrew, in Aramaic, this was is a famous sentence, which some people memorized it in Aramaic. In Aramaic, it sounds like Talita Kumi. If you see the Franco Zeffirelli movie about Jesus, by the way, Franco Zeffirelli died two days ago, and he's the one who did the most incredible Jesus movie of all of them. In the Franco Zeffirelli movie, when he shows this scene, he actually uses the Aramaic words, like Jesus takes her by the hand. Uh, he doesn't show if there are other people in the room, it's just Jesus with her in that pictogram. And Jesus says, Talita Kumi. It's like a mantra, you know, like, rise, little girl. And he told to her, in the middle of this madness, my child, or little girl, get up. Her spirit returned. Aha. So the spirit was out of the body, right? So the spirit returned, which is impossible by the laws of nature. His, her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. At once. She stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Always eating brings you more down in your muladhara and svadhisthana and anchors you more in the physical body and Jesus wanted her to be anchored in her muladhara and svadhisthana. Now, if you have a spiritual experience and you say, oh my God, I got so high, this meditation was amazing, you can kill it by eating something. You just go and eat something and then boom, you are down in your perineal. So sometimes when people want to keep to prolong some high experiences, they don't eat for one, two, three, five hours, simply because they know that as long as you don't eat, you can stay a bit high, but if you eat, you are bringing it down. So Jesus told them to give her something to eat, because he knew that this was the way to anchor with the body better. Her parents were astonished. 
but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Like, how the fuck? Because there are 500 people outside, wailing, and then jeering. And still Jesus says, you've been inside, you've seen me doing it, zip it. Let everybody else believe what they want to believe. People were jeering at him, and then of course when they saw the girl, five minutes later, fifteen minutes later, they said, shit, you know, this bugger has done it somehow. But it must be that she was not dead. They thought she was dead, and she probably had high fever, and she was in a sort of a coma, and this guy gave her a good friction with vinegar. We heard he's a great masseur, and uh, he just uh, brought her back. And they thought, you know, like people would believe anything, but not believe that she was dead and he brought her back. And when they were jeering at him, like, what an idiot, he says she's just asleep. No, then uh, they would be ready to say, you know what, maybe he was right. Maybe he was, she was just asleep. You know? Like people would prefer to believe anything except to believe that he brought her from the death because that is forcing their faith too much. That makes them accept and go to a place which is too much. You know? So that's why, but you see, Jesus encourages this ambiguity. Like Jesus knows that from those 500 people or whatever was out there, some of them will be confused. Most of them will be confused. Because the parents could go out and say, citizens, we've seen it with our own eyes. Our daughter was cold there. This guy took her by the hand and said, Talita Kumi, and she just came back. But they didn't. He told them, but don't say it. And he just raised their daughter. Of course they obeyed. And the other three guys were his own disciples. And he told them, don't say what you've seen. They said, maybe he had some special herbs. Maybe she was poisoned and he had the antidote. Maybe she was having just a high fever and she was comatose and he rubbed her with vinegar. Like people would be ready to believe anything. I was in the church of the tomb of Jesus in 1997, I think. No, in 1995, when I saw the Holy Light. You remember, we did the Holy Light meditation. Those of you who are here. And there was a Romanian guy who had been in the same place with me. And I talked with him accidentally as we were walking out. He was ready to swear to me that it was all counterfeited. And that he saw somebody bringing a light from the other altar and sneaking it into the patriarch. Like there are 10,000 people who are watching it like this. This Romanian guy, that's what he wanted to see. That's what he could see. That the light was not coming. And quickly, quickly they sent somebody and they brought a little bit of light so that the patriarch could light his candles and pretend the light had come. The light had come. I was one, I didn't tell him anything, but I was wondering, have this guy and I been in the same church like how is it possible that he has seen this like he's like hypnotized you know he saw what his limited karma wanted him to see he didn't see what actually happened so that's the story here that's where this goes that even in this radical case Jesus brought back a little child 
and he did it, and today we read about it, but at the same time only five people saw it, and he told them, don't tell to others. Of course, eventually it became world famous. There are movies made about it, but he didn't want it directly like this. It was too much karma, too much forcing the humanity to accept something which normally they cannot. So he preferred to do it in this twilight zone. So some people will believe and be nourished. And some people will say, ah, maybe she was asleep or something. That is enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining. We'll continue. Whenever you have questions, remember, bring them in the Q&As. And with this, we have finished for tonight.